Good morning. That's pretty good. The first group was pretty good, too. They, they responded really well. We're glad you're here uh, on this holiday weekend. Uh, we're glad that those who are joining us online are with us. And we are going to uh, look this morning at the whole idea of celebration. That's, that's where we're heading. Um, so consequently, there's an awful lot of scripture. And Lissa diligently put all of the scripture, matter of fact, wrote them all out. And uh, it, w- it reminded me, you know, the old saying was that a young preacher would try to preach everything the first Sunday, tried to preach the whole Bible. And that's what it looks like when you look at the outline in the bulletin, if you were to look at that. And I'm, I'm thinking, oh my goodness, these people are going to think, before I even get started, that they should have stayed home. Or they should have gone on vacation now. But uh, assu- I'm going to assure you that we are going to see a lot of scripture, but I'm not going to read every verse. And everyone said, amen. Also, Zena said, she watched me the first service, and I am to slow down in one section. If, she, if I don't, she's going to give, make a face at me or something that's going to... Um, this weekend, Sharon and I have had a great weekend. Uh, we started the weekend on Friday, actually, with a wedding. I see there was another wedding. Is that true, Thayer's? You had another wedding. This we, we had a wedding. Many of us in this room were in, at the wedding. And uh, it was a beautiful time, a, a great couple. And I was thinking, why, this is a celebration. Truly it is. Uh, you know, and then we, we are concluding the, the weekend on Monday with another celebration, the 4th of July. But I, I began to think about this whole concept of celebrating. And, um, you know, here we were Friday night, and, and this man and this woman were pledging themselves to one another, and pledging themselves to God. And, and I thought, this is interesting. You know, I wonder uh, how much of this service, because the service amounts to about 20 to 30 minutes, the wedding service. The rest of the time is eating and whatever, right? And I'm thinking, how much of the actual service will they remember? How much do you remember? I don't remember what I said on my wedding day. Does they, I asked this question, I, I didn't ask people to raise, raise their hand, but w- w- there was one hand that said, I remember everything I said on my wedding day. He was probably the oldest man in the group. Uh, I don't know. I don't remember what I said on my wedding. I know what I said now because we, we took the formal vows. We, back in 1974, we didn't, you know, we weren't writing our own vows and all of that. But uh, I know what I said now because I've repeated it enough time with enough couples over the years. Do you re- the formal vow, uh, you, they pledge to each other that they will they'll live for each other for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, forsaking all others, to love and to cherish till death us do part. And every couple that I ever worked with stumbled over those last three words. Till death us do part, right? And, and then there would be the exchanging of the rings, right? And, and we would say something like this, that this is a seal of fidelity and affection and a memorial of the sacred service. And then there would be the giving of rings, saying that this was symbolic of the love and devotion. Anybody remember all that? Dennis, you remember. Hallelujah. You've got a winner, Karen. You better keep him. Uh, but, you know, I, I personally didn't remember all that. 
I, I remember my wedding day, naturally, but, but how much do we remember? And how much do we remember when we walk away and it, we kind of lengthen out the time, you know, from this celebration? We, we kind of forget. We go through our first anniversary. We, we went through the first anniversary. We didn't have any children at that point in time. And we went through the first anniversary, and it was special. And then we got to the second one. We had a, had a kid by that point in time. And then we, you know, went further along, and we had more kids. And it seemed like every time we took a vacation, it was always around our anniversary. And so consequently, unless we could pawn them off on my, my mother or Sharon's mother and father, we were, you know, we were celebrating, but were we celebrating? And then we got to our 25th wedding anniversary. And, and on our 25th, Sharon said we ought to renew our vows. I, I didn't know if I was ready to renew my vows. Or I, I, it was a great idea. She, she was right. I was wrong. I, we didn't do it, by the way. But we should have. And in two years, we're going to celebrate our 50th anniversary. Wow. <laughs> Hallelujah. Two years. <clears throat> I said to the kids, they better start planning now, right? But we, here's, here's the reality. We, sh, we celebrate that day, but it kind of loses some of the magnitude as we move along in our years. Well, then we get to, then we talk about the 4th of July. And everyone here in this room would probably remember that the 4th of July marks the independence of, of this country and so on and so forth. But do you know everything that was happening behind the scenes? And, and I think we kind of lose sight of this, and when we do, we kind of lose the significance of the day. July the 4th, 1776. 56 men sat in a room in Philadelphia in the Second Continental Congress. And they determined that day that they would in turn declare that they were independent. They'd already made a declaration. They already made a decision two days earlier on July the 2nd when the Lee resolution was passed. And at that point in time, formally, they said, we sever our relations with the mother country. But now they're going to declare it. They're going to declare it to the people in the 13 colonies, and they're going to declare it to the king of England, King George III. Now, one year prior to that, in, in, in 1775, they had had their first Continental Congress, and at that point in time, there were 65 men sitting in the room, and they had made a decision that they weren't ready. There were a few that had decided, yes, it was time to sever the relations, but in eight, 1775, they weren't sure, the bulk of them. But one year later, a year changes a lot of things. War was already going on, and at that point in time, they declared war, and they declared their independence. Wow. But we don't understand what that meant. You see, that, that declaration was going to be delivered ultimately to King George III. And we had just declared war against the most powerful army in the world. An army that was far better armed, far better manned. They had professionals who were, who were made up their army. And what did we have? We had a ragtag army made, of farm, made up of farmers who would come and fight for three months and then they'd go home so they could take care of their farms. And in turn, it would appear on the surface that we should have never, never won the war. And if we had lost... 
Those 56 men would have lost everything. They would have lost all of their, all of their wealth. They would have lost all of their property. They would have lost their significance. They would have lost everything. And most likely, they would have lost their lives because they would have been tried for treason. But they still placed their names on that Declaration of Independence, those 56 men. And that's what we celebrate. But we've forgotten that. We've forgotten the reality of what happened and what it means and how people have sacrificed down through the ages that we might be a free people. You know, celebration is not something new and different. It's very much, it's very scriptural, you realize. You, you look at scripture and you find between Exodus and, and, and Deuteronomy that the Lord is continuously telling his people that they are to, to fast, they are to feast, they are to celebrate. Why? Because he wanted them to remember. He wanted them to recall. He wanted his, the children of those who were celebrating to understand what this was all about. There was a celebration. For instance, if you take a look at Scripture, listen very diligently, put all of Leviticus 23, and I'm glad she did, but I'm not going to read it all. Okay? It's not even going to be projected. But in Leviticus chapter 23, they listed out seven feast days. The first one, the Sabbath, the time of rest and reflection in the Lord. The second, the Passover, uh, or the Feast of Unleavened Bread, a time to remember how the Lord had brought his people out of Egypt at a time to remove the leaven, the yeast, from their lives. The Feast of First Fruits. A time to celebrate the beginning of the harvest. The Feast of Weeks, or the Feast of Pentecost, it was called. A time to celebrate the end of the harvest. The Feast of Trumpets, a day of rest. A day of atonement, a sacred assembly and fasting and repentance. A Feast of Tabernacle, a commemoration of Israel leaving Egypt and living in tents. Tabernacles. That was the celebration. And he told them that they were to do this year after year after year. And yet, if you go to, like, 2 Kings or 2 Chronicles, what you would find is that year after year after year, the people would not celebrate what God had told them to celebrate. Time and again, they would not celebrate the feast of the Passover. They would lose out. They would lose their way because they didn't remember. Well, I would like to suggest to you that every time we gather in this place, this is a time of celebration. Every single time. It's scriptural, but it's a time for us to come and receive. Now, let me give a disclaimer right here and now. When, we, when I talk about celebration, I'm not just talking about the singing. This was a great worship time, but I'm not just talking about that. I'm not talking about the shout. You know, some people get very exuberant in, in worship or very exuberant in, in, in declaring their faith in the living God. I'm not talking about that exuberance. I'm not talking about the dance. I'm not talking about how high someone jumps or how loud they, 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 they are. I'm not talking about anything like of that nature. What I'm talking about is that every single time when we come into this room, we need to realize that we're coming to celebrate the Almighty God and we need to prepare our hearts and our minds for that celebration. That's what I'm talking about. We need to come with the realization that God has something for us, that God desires to speak to us. But so often we lose out on receiving all that God has. 
And you might say, well, why? Well, because of life. Life happens. The past week, the past month, life happens. And sometimes we, we struggle to separate ourselves from life. And we're unable to come in here and receive what God has. Sometimes we come in and we're mad at God. And, and many of you would say, I've never mad at God. And I would say, yes, you are. There are times. Especially when God seems to not be doing what you would like him to do. <laughs> we become angry with him. And sometimes we come in and, and, and we've had a falling out with people in the church. And, and we come and we think that somehow uh, that so overwhelms us that we fail to receive all that God has. And I'm here to tell you, it's not about people when you come to church. It's about worshiping the almighty God. That's why we come. We don't come because of. We come with the reality that God desires to meet with us. Sometimes, sometimes it's the frustration over the church. The church isn't moving fast enough. The church, isn't, the church is moving too fast. The, there are too many things changing. Sometimes it's because of the way we worship. We sing songs too many times. We, we don't sing the right songs. In so many areas, and we're robbed of receiving all that God has for us. Well, if that's not enough, some of you, especially, I can remember when we had small children. And some of my small children are sitting here. They're not so small anymore. But trying to get them out of the door on a Sunday morning was like trying to pull teeth. Does anyone want to say amen to that? And, you know, we dressed them nice, and, and before we got them out the door, they didn't look so nice. Or we dress them nice to get them out the door, and then they are fighting with one another. They're arguing, and right? And then mom and dad. I was the preacher for Pete's sake. And I would be upset. Because of everything that was going on. You know, the enemy of your soul desires to rob you of this experience every Sunday morning. And then he will do everything he can to keep you from receiving all that God has. He'll, he'll cause you to recall everything. He'll cause you to, to, to rethink everything. He'll cause you to... He will create a turmoil within you so that you don't receive what God has. And yet, here we are, we've come, and we have to make sure that we walk into this place and we're ready to celebrate Him. And we're ready to hear from Him. So the question comes, how do I do that? How do I get to the place of where I come in prepared to celebrate the living God? How do I come in prepared to celebrate all that he is? Well, I'm, I'm going to suggest three things. First of all, we need to come to grips with who he is. Can we understand who our God is? Uh, then we have to realize all that he has done for us. Now, I'm just going to look at what the Word says about what he's done. I'm not going to talk about your individual, your individual situations, but we're going to talk about what has he done. And then we're going to talk about the promises, his promises for you. Because if we can get a hold of who God is, what he has done, and his promises, then we will come in prepared to receive. We'll come in prepared to receive all that God has for you and I. We won't go away robbed. My concern this morning, here's my major concern. I don't want people to leave services day after day, time after time, 
failing to receive all that God has for them. Can anyone say amen? amen? You're quieter than the first group, by the way. You could say amen, doesn't bother me at all. You could say hallelujah, that doesn't bother me. Okay, so let's talk about, let's talk about these three areas. The first area, who is God? Well, the interesting thing is when we start talking about God, we've got to realize something. He is, he is the almighty God, yeah, but he is a triune God. He is a, he is, he is, we're really worshiping and celebrating the Godhead. Now, I could go into a long dissertation about the Trinity, and I would lose most of you about midway through, and you'd go out of here scratching your head, and you'd say, I, I don't know what he's talking about. But the, that's, that's scriptural. We can't get away from it. We serve a triune God. We serve the Godhead. And, and the Godhead, all three persons of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all three of them have the same intrinsic attributes. And he share, they share them. God shares them with no one. They're his and his alone. It's only God that's eternal. He has, the, he, he, he has no beginning. He has no end. You have a beginning and you will have an end. But not God. This God of all creation is omniscient. Right? He's all-knowing. Now, like, a lot of us like to think we know a lot of things, or all things, but we're not all-knowing. This God that we serve is omnipresent. He's present everywhere. Some of you would like to be present everywhere, especially when it comes to your kids, but you're not going to be. That's an impossibility. And he's also omnipotent. He is all-powerful. You and I are not all-powerful. The, the reality is he does not share those attributes with anyone. That makes him God. This is the God that we serve. So what does Scripture say about it? First of all, Revelation 1.8 tells us what? That he is almighty. John 6.32 tells us that he is the bread of life. He is our sustenance. He is that which is going to keep us. 1 Peter 5.4 tells us he's the chief shepherd. We are the sheep. He is the shepherd. Don't ever forget that. Don't get that backwards, by the way. Isaiah 9.6 tells us he, he is counselor. He's the everlasting God. John 1.3 tells us he is the creator. John 11.25 tells us he is the resurrection and the life. Luke 2.11 tells us he's the savior. Deuteronomy 33.27 tells us he's the eternal God. 2 Samuel 22.2 tells us he's our fortress. Isn't it great that you have a fortress that surrounds you, that keeps you? that protects you. Matthew 6.26 tells us he's our heavenly father. Genesis 18.25 tells us he's our judge. I'm thankful for that judge. I'd much rather have him be the judge than a man be the judge of me. Genesis 18.25 tells us he's the judge. Revelation 1.7 tells us he's the beginning and the end. The first and the last. And John 1.14 tells us he's the truth. That's what he is. That's who he is. He's all of this and so much more. I've only covered just, a, I just skimmed the surface. This is who he is. So when we come to the place of realizing that when we understand who he is, then we come in here prepared better to worship. But there's two other areas, remember. There's the area of celebrating what he has done. So what has he done for you? For each one of you, there are specific things that he has done. Have you ever stopped 
Have you ever taken your prayer time and just sat there and thought about all that he has done for you? Not ask for anything, just think about what he has done for you. Have you ever recounted? The other day in, in prayer, I was sitting there thinking about, I just, I took my life from the point in time when I was a kid all the way up, and I thought, oh my goodness, he has blessed me beyond measure. He has continuously poured out his grace and his mercy and his goodness to me. This is overwhelming. Everything that he has done. You need to do that sometime. Just sit and think about what he has done for you. We could go to Scripture. We find in Scripture, John chapter 3, verse number 16, what does it say? That God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Why? So that we could have eternal life. We go to the 17th verse and we find that he didn't come... To come to condemn the world, but to save the world through Jesus. That's what he's done. Now, he's done it to the extent where 2 Peter tells us in 3, 9 that he doesn't want, desire anyone to perish. He doesn't want anyone to perish. That person that you struggle with, that neighbor that's a pain, that fellow worker that just gets on your nerves. That member of your family that just is a struggle every time you're with him. He doesn't desire for them to perish. When you come to grips with that, how does that change your perspective? Or, or, or we go to 1 John 2, 1, and we're told that he speaks to the Father in our defense. He comes alongside. He sits at the right hand of the Father, and he speaks your defense. He goes to the Father. As a matter of fact, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse number 5 tells us he's the mediator between you and the Father. Or we go to Romans eleven twenty six, 26, and we find that he is the deliverer. Or we go to Acts chapter 1, verse number 8, saying that he provided the Holy Spirit to come alongside of us, to empower us, not so that we could speak in tongues. He empowered us so that in turn, we can be an effective witness for him and we can live this life for him. That's why he empowered us. He did that for us. Or we could go to Psalm 103, verse 3, tells us he is the God that heals our diseases. Or we could go to Exodus chapter 15, 26, and, and we're told that he is the God that heals. Or we could go to Psalm 147, verse 3, where we're told that he is the one who heals the brokenhearted. We don't have to, we don't have to, to exist in our sorrow and in our grieving. Look at that, what he has done. And then you start being specific and you start realizing what he's done for you as an individual. Wow. And when we start realizing who he is and what he has done, that right there, now we're heading in the right direction. We're preparing ourselves to come here and to worship him. Or we get to the third area. The third area. We celebrate God's promises. Now, I am told or I have been told, and many of you have read it the same thing, that there are 365 promises in the New Testament. 365 in the Bible, excuse me. 365 promises. And, and I don't know, I have not gone through the Bible and, and looked at all the promises. Has anybody here? You've gone through and you, you... I don't know. One for every day of the year, I'm told. I've never done that. I'm not going to go through 365 promises. Okay? And everyone said, Amen. <laughs> We're not going to do that. But listen to some of the promises. Deuteronomy 
or 3.6, excuse me, 31.6. I'll get it right here sooner or later. Deuteronomy 31.6, I will never leave you, never will I forsake you. He is never going to give up on you. He's never going to leave you. He's not going to cast you aside. He is not going to say that you're not worth it. He is never going to do that. That's a promise. Psalm 34, verse number 18, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. When we are crushed in our spirit, he is there. And he understands, and he comes alongside of us, and he builds us up. Or how about Luke 6, 38? Listen to this. Give, and will be given to you a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be poured into your lap. You can't outgive God. Don't be afraid to give to God. You may say, I can't afford it. You can't afford not to. God will outgive you every single time. Because that's who he is. If that's not enough, we go to, to Luke chapter 11, verse number 9. Ask it and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. Ask, seek, knock. And in every instance, he will hear and he will answer. How about, how about 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse number 13? God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Oh, this God of all creation is not going to let you be tempted more than what you can deal with it. That is his promise to you. James 4, 7. Submit yourselves to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. If you will resist and you will seek God, then in turn what will happen? The enemy of your soul cannot have sway in your life. You can be assured of that. That's a promise to you. And then finally, how about Revelation 22, verses 7 and 12? Behold. Behold. In other words, he's saying, sit up and take notice. Behold, I am coming soon. He is coming back. He is coming back for a victorious church. Are we victorious? Because if we're victorious, then we are celebrating. Amen? So consequently, he has given us the reality of who he is. He's given us the reality of what he has done. And he's given us the reality of his promises. I'm going to ask the worship team to come and join me. All that so that in turn we could come and receive from him every Sunday. Now, as I was preparing this, I was also reading a book by Mark Batterson. Mark Batterson is one of my favorites. Um, he's a pastor at the National uh, Community Church in Washington, D.C., an A.G. church. And uh, his la the last book that I read was uh, entitled Win the Day. And he tells two stories in the book that I want to relate to you. The first story was about John D. Rockefeller. We've heard of John D. Rockefeller. John D. Rockefeller, 1855, he was 16 years old. He started to look for a job in August. And for six weeks, he walked the streets looking for a job. Finally, on September the 26th, 
1855, he walked into the Cleveland Merchant Company and was hired as an assistant bookkeeper at that wonderful rate of 50 cents a day. From that point on, September the 26th was a personal holiday for him. Because every single day from that point on, he looked back and said it was the hinge point for my life. It was the hinge point for what was going to happen in my life. John D. Rockefeller was a multimillionaire in his day. He would be more like a, a billionaire. Some people think that he was the richest man there ever was in the United States. But John D. Rockefeller, from that point in time, at the age of 16, celebrated September the 26th. He tells another story about a man by the name of Dennis Waitley, who on May the 25th, 1979, was rushing in Chicago to catch a flight to Los Angeles because he had a speaking engagement. He ran across the airport and he got to the, got to the gate and they had just closed the door. He pleaded with them, begged them to open the door so that he could go down the jetway and they wouldn't allow him. They said no. He was angry. He'd been cheated. He was there. They should have opened the door for him. So he immediately went to the, the ticket counter to place a complaint. And as he's standing in line at the ticket counter, an announcement came over the PA and it said, American Airlines Flight 191 to Los Angeles has crashed on takeoff, killing all 258 passengers on board. The deadliest aviation accident in U.S. history. Needless to say, Dennis Whiteley did not lodge his complaint that day. He took his paper ticket and he went home and he placed that ticket in his office so that he could be reminded of how God had spared his life that day. A way of celebration. Folks, when we come in here this any day, any Sunday, we have to realize that what God has done is He spared our lives. What God has done is he has, he has created a hinge point for you and I so that every time that we come together, we can hear from Him and receive from Him. And so every time that we gather together, there should be celebration. Hebrews, Hebrews tells us we shouldn't forsake the gathering of ourselves together. We should come with a with the reality that we, we need to celebrate Him. And He goes on to say, especially as the day, the day is approaching. I'm here to tell you the day is approaching. We need to be celebrated. And again, it's not by the song, it's not by the shout, it's not by the jump, it's not by the dance. Oh, are any of those banned? No. Is expressing your faith banned? No. But there's more to it. There's the condition of our hearts and the condition of our minds. And how do we prepare ourselves so that in turn we can celebrate Him and receive from Him? 
Now I'm going to ask you to do something for me right now. Every head bowed, every eye closed. In just a few minutes, we're going to share in communion. But before we share in communion, to celebrate what he has done, there's something I need to do first. And that's this. To give anyone in this auditorium an opportunity to commit their life to Christ. You see, because if they have not committed their life to Christ, if they have not, if you've not come to that place of acknowledging him for all that he is as your savior, then in turn, in turn, you'll be robbed. You'll be robbed of knowing who he is. You'll be robbed of knowing all that he's done for you. You'll be robbed of his promises. So this morning, I'm going to ask you to do something bold and brave. If you are here, this is the very first time, and you would like to acknowledge Christ, you'd like to have us pray for you, and we're not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to embarrass you at all. I'm going to simply ask you to stand right where you are. I'm going to ask you to stand so that in turn, I might intelligently pray for you. I'm only going to wait a few minutes. So if you're here, and this is the first time, and you would like to commit your life to Christ, I would love to pray with you. I'm just going to ask you to stand right where you are. As I look across this auditorium, if I see no one standing, then I'm going to move on to the communion service. Folks, when you stand, and when you commit your life to Christ, there's celebration in heaven. And from that point on, you will not be able to do anything but celebrate Him. I'm going to wait just another minute. Don't be afraid. This is not a time of, of being afraid. Don't let the enemy rob you from this experience. Last opportunity. Father, thank you. Thank you for everyone sitting in this auditorium this morning. I pray, Lord God, your richest blessings on them. But also, Lord God, I pray that you would reveal yourself to them, each person here, in a way, Lord God, that truly, truly would indicate your love for them and your desire for them. Do a precious work in them. Jesus, have your way.